From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. And even though it's six months after we first wanted to do this, we're finally able to do it. And it is my pleasure to welcome on the longtime golf analyst at Golf Channel and NBC. It is Mark Rolfing. Mark, welcome to Teeing It Up. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy, and I can't tell you how much I have looked forward to doing this with you, and I want to thank you also for providing me all sorts of nuggets of information uh, when you don't even know that I'm probably using them, but uh, I've looked forward to being on with you, and uh, let's get after it. Yes, uh, let's get after it, and speaking of getting after it... Um NBC is back in the USGA business, um, and Mark will be contributing to Golf Channel's live from the U.S. Open coverage from Wingfoot next week. He'll be on the daytime coverage throughout the week. We will get to the U.S. Open later in this show, but let's first start off, Mark, with your health. Everybody, I'm sure, asks you, um, how, how are you? And also, I know there's something you want to say in terms of a PSA of sorts in terms of cancer screening, so I'm going to leave the floor wide open to you and uh, just let you say whatever you want to say. Well, thank you, Jeremy. First of all, I am healthy. Um, I've managed to stay away from the virus, which is uh, the first order of business in today's world, but uh, believe it or not, I am coming up on my fifth anniversary of being cancer-free. That'll be in November when I go down to MD Anderson in Houston for the Houston Open, and I will get my uh, my five-year PET scan down there, which I'm sure is going to be as clean as a whistle. Uh, and once you get to the five-year mark, that's sort of a benchmark. Um, it, they, they say there's almost no chance the cancer will come back after that. Uh, it's been an incredible journey for me. Uh, it was totally unexpected five years ago. I didn't have really a history of cancer in my family very much. Uh, and to get diagnosed with a very dire stage four salivary gland uh, that needed to be handled right away was quite a shock to my system, but I had tremendous help, tremendous care. I got very lucky. Uh, And now uh, the most important thing for me is to pay it forward uh, for the people who are facing the same thing I did. And really people fall into two categories. You have a category of people that have already been diagnosed with cancer, uh, and I'm able to talk to a lot of them who reach out to me on a pretty regular basis, and I always try to deliver a message of hope, uh, because hope is the most important thing. It's the most important thing uh, for anybody going through cancer, um, and there is always hope. Uh, So don't ever forget that if you've got the diagnosis. The other thing, which is equally as important, if not more, is awareness. And uh, my main message now with with MD Anderson and their network um, is to make people aware uh, of what the dangers are uh, and and what the reality is in terms of people facing cancer at some point in their lifetime and just trying to get people to be aware of their body, uh, if there's any kind of changes, um, you know, to immediately go see the doctor. Uh, but in my case, the, the most important message right now on cancer awareness is, is um, skin screenings. And, uh, you know, I'm outside a lot, as are most golfers, and um, you just can't be careful enough about preventing skin cancer. It is the deadliest of all cancers, believe it or not. 
but it's also the most preventable. Uh, so hope for people who have been diagnosed and awareness for those who haven't is my main message. So glad to hear that you are doing well and, and five years is amazing and the PSAs that you've done on shows, on telecasts, in the commercial for MD Anderson in concert with the PGA Tour, it it is just amazing stuff and to you and to Debbie and, and to the whole family, um, props for how you've handled it. I'm uh, so glad you're doing well and also major props on how you've continued to pay it forward to others down the line. We are so grateful to have you happy and healthy. And Mark is also trying to bring uh, golf to Chicago and specifically the South Shore Jackson Park Restoration Project, um, which he has put, uh, which he has collaborated on, sorry, with uh, Tiger Woods on. And that project, which was announced several years ago with a lot of hope, has kind of grinded to a halt. Or has it? So Mark, uh, who has been spearheading this from the beginning, can give us the answer here. Uh, What is the latest with the South Shore Jackson Park um, restoration project? Well, I think you said it perfectly, Jeremy, because it's kind of grinded to a halt, but it really hasn't. Um, So actually what is happening, and I was up there uh, in between the BMW Championship in Chicago and the Tour Championship. I was out at Jackson Park. Uh, and South Shore, and basically what has happened is there's been a federal review uh, that was enacted on the Obama Presidential Center. That's his library, Obama's library, that is going to be built in Jackson Park, right on the golf course there. Uh, And because they were using uh, land that's park land, and because it's a national historic monument, Jackson Park in general, uh, the federal government decided to put on some pretty strict uh, reviews. And so basically what that's done is slowed down the entire process. And even though there's two different projects here, the library and the golf course, they're one and the same. The golf course is going to be the front yard of the library. And President Obama very much uh, is a proponent of the golf course and, and knows that we have to get the whole thing right in order for it to work. So I can quite happily tell you that it looks like this federal review is going to be over within the next month, certainly before the end of the year. Uh, And I would not be surprised at all, Jeremy, to see this project start moving forward early next year. That would be awesome. Um, Tiger was asked about this uh, at the end of the BMW and basically said it's tied up in... uh, government-related stuff, and and it seemed like he was anxious for it to get going, and and it's good to hear that it's about to get going, Um, hopefully on on a larger scale, because uh, Tiger's been talking about this, um, and and I know for you, and, and, and just to say one last thing on this topic, I'm sure for you, as somebody who has loved the Chicago area for so long, but also as somebody who's trying to spearhead a project like this, there's probably a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes that we never know anything about. And maybe because this is Tiger, it's getting more publicity than if it was Davis Love, you know, creating a golf course. It seems like this one's gotten more attention because of who the architect is. Is that kind of your experience with this as well? Yeah, that, that's my experience as well. And, uh, you know, we never intended from the beginning for Tiger to be involved politically. Um, you know, it's interesting, Jeremy. I grew up in Chicago. I, I grew up on the north side of Chicago. 
Uh, and I still firmly believe that Chicago is the greatest golf town in America. There is no metropolitan area in the United States like Chicago when it comes to the plethora of golf courses that, and quality golf courses that you can find everywhere. But um, where there is not strength when it comes to golf is more on the south side. Uh, and it was really during my cancer initial diagnosis and then ultimately the surgery at the University of Chicago Hospital where I was looking out the window uh, at Jackson Park Golf Course. I had never played it at that time. So that was five years ago. And uh, it was the middle of August, and I'm out there looking, and there's nobody playing golf, and school's not in session. There's no kids anywhere. And I kept saying to myself, what's wrong with this picture here? Um, You know, and, and is there something that could be done? And... Frankly, when Tiger got involved, it got the boost that it needed. I had never in my wildest dreams thought Tiger Woods would look at a project like this and say it was something he wanted to do, but President Obama called him, uh, and uh, ever since that phone call, Tiger has been all in on it. He came up there and we spent an entire day uh, a couple of years ago, and I thought after he left, he was you know, maybe never going to come back again because he would have thought there were too many obstacles to it. Uh, But he has been very much a proponent of it. He's been very patient. He really wants to see it happen. And uh, I really think it's got a chance now of happening. And if it does, Jeremy, I believe this will be the model uh, for the future of sustainable urban golf in America. I hope so. Uh, the plans, and, and people can go to TigerWoods.com or Google Jackson Park Tiger Woods to see the plans are, are so impressive. And uh, it, it really is a testament to Tiger for his commitment to this project. And crazy how things kind of happen. You're sitting there having just gone through a major surgery and you're looking at a golf course by coincidence and all these thoughts start running to your head. It's, it's, it's amazing how some of this stuff happens sometimes. Um, let's now move on, speaking of, of Tiger, to the BMW Championship and the Tour Championship. We're talking to uh, Golf Channel and NBC's Mark Rolfing here on Teeing It Up. Mark, you just walked inside the ropes on course commentary for your, for your first two events in this COVID-19 era of no fans. How weird, awkward, different of an experience was it? What have these past two weeks been like? Well, they were quite different. Um, Obviously not having the fans out there um, is is very different. Um, I, I think it affects the environment a lot more for some players than it does others. I think, for example, with Tiger... Uh, it probably has not been a positive thing. Certainly Rory McIlroy misses um, uh, the energy that he gets from fans, uh, but other players probably doesn't matter as much. The one thing you have to be really careful of is, as an on-course commentator, I have to always have a cart with me uh, in case I move. And in most cases, I would move because I would do a few holes for the Golf Channel show uh, and then go back to the first tee to begin the NBC show, which sometimes is a mile away. Uh, and you just have to be so careful of these carts moving around because the players can see everything. There's no build-out of structures, uh, and everybody's kind of walking around a little bit on eggshells, so so that is weird. But having said that, um, you know, they were two tremendous venues. I, I just thought Olympia Field 
was spectacular. And I really don't think Olympia Fields got its due back in 2003 at that U.S. Open. It got kind of a bad rap on that one. A lot of it was because of the way uh, the course was set up, I think. And, and I just thought Olympia Fields was one of the best real, true championship setups that I've seen in a long time. And so so was Eastlake. Uh, I left those two weeks, uh, Jeremy, though, just thinking the quality of play uh, and what we're seeing out of these players after the restart has been just nothing short of spectacular. Uh, it really has been phenomenal. And, um, you know, what Dustin Johnson has done at the PGA Championship and then the three-week that a cup playoff run really is just unprecedented in the game. It's the quality of play and the quality of winner has been so impressive. Um, it's really been something to behold. And the other thing about Olympia Fields is I think that people in genuinely enjoyed seeing a golf course play tough and seeing good shots rewarded and bad shots penalized. And Tiger talked about this. He missed it too often on the wrong side when for his whole career he's missed it in the right spots. And you look at who ended up in that playoff. John Rahm and DJ are two of the best ball strikers in the PGA Tour. They put themselves in there, and and that was because they put the ball in the places where they could make putts and ultimately make it in, even though 43 and 66-footers are crazy. But... Ultimately, they, they, over the course of four days, they gave themselves the opportunities, which ultimately landed them in the playoffs. One thing about Tiger, having walked with him, and you've walked so many rounds with him, and you said something early, I forget if it was in the third or fourth round coverage, but you, you, you remarked that he just didn't have any mojo. You just didn't sense any vibes go in the right direction with Tiger, and... One of the things that I've noticed as a fan is that his short game has not been as sharp as normal. Everybody keeps talking about his putting, but his bunker play wasn't sharp. His chips and pitches were kind of rolling past a little bit. He left himself a lot of five, six-footers instead of two, three-footers. It just seemed to me that he didn't give himself the opportunities, you know, did not take advantage of a par five. He it looked to me that not only was his putter not sharp, but his entire short game was not sharp. Yeah, I would I would agree with that assessment. What I would say about that though is when you talk about mojo and you talk about a feeling uh, around the player, um, the putter to me is what dictates that more than any other club in the bag. And the reason is this: um, Tiger Woods, I believe putted better in the year 2000 than any player I have ever seen. Uh, I watched him play a lot of golf that summer, and I don't remember him missing an eight-foot putt that entire summer. Uh, what, what Tiger was so good at was saving rounds with putts. Uh, when he didn't have his best stuff tee to green or when he wasn't scrambling as well, uh, the putter was always there to save a round. And to me, it was more important for Tiger to turn around that ultimately uh, ended up with a score of 68. To turn that around from a 73 or 74 or 72 uh, was really what kept his mojo going. And uh, what I was talking about with his putting at Olympia was that he did not putt well. He simply is not, a, is not the putter that he was 20 years ago. 
And I think a lot of that is probably due to the fact that he can't practice as much. People wouldn't know it, but uh, putting, practicing your putting is probably harder on your back than any other part of the game. Um, and so he, he just is not the same putter. And where it really hurts him with Mojo, I think, is he can't turn those mediocre ball striking rounds uh, into good scores like he used to be able to. Yeah, it's a great point. And it's one of those things that I think people would think the driver would be the hardest because it's the most force, but it's that bending over. And I'm somebody that has a good back, but even if I put myself through a long putting day, uh, uh, putting practice day, even I'm going to feel it in my back. So I think, you know, for anybody out there, you try to practice putting for an hour straight and then try to do that, you know, three, four, five hours straight and kind of gives you somewhat of an idea of what you're seeing with these people. Um, one thing I wanted to say, uh, sorry, one thing I wanted to ask you about DJ before I, I move on to the U.S. Open and, and kind of bring this whole chat somewhat full circle is Dustin is so streaky and it is so crazy how when he just has it going, it's it's going. And I've said for years that Rory McIlroy, I believe, is the prettiest driver golf swing when he's on to watch because there's just something about the flow of it that is right it just seems right it looks right it's just a pretty thing to to look at as you think about dj and obviously we know the work that he's done from 125 and in the putting work he's done with austin uh over these past you know four six weeks but I felt that come Saturday and Sunday, especially Saturday, um, he really grinded ball striking wise and, he, and uh, at the Tour Championship this is and hit the fairways that he had to hit. And it was the ball striking that then led to the putting opportunities, which he converted. Do you think that's a formula that is repeatable or, or uh, put this way? What do you think is going to be the most important thing for him to carry over? The ball striking and finding that fade and then hitting that fade or the improved putting work, which he and AJ have worked so hard on? Well, believe it or not, Jeremy, I'm going to say neither one. Mm. I'm going to say course management. And it's because I think Dustin Johnson has as good a course management skeleton and principles. He's got as good a management style as any player maybe I have ever seen. He is like a chameleon. People have this mis- misperception about Dustin Johnson that he's a bomber and gouger. That could not be further from the truth. Uh, he has a strategy that uh, is just remarkable how he can adapt. So consider this. He's had two stretches in his career uh, that I would call spectacular golf. He had a stretch in 2017 where he won three tournaments in a row. This is right before he fell down the steps at at the Masters. He won three tournaments in a row. The first tournament he won was at Riviera, a major championship venue, ball striker's paradise, tremendous shot values, you know, tough golf course. Uh, He wins at Riviera. Then he goes to Mexico, and he's playing a tiny little Chapultepec golf course at over 7,000 feet of elevation. Uh, and it's just a completely different style of play. He wins there. And then the next tournament he plays, then he goes to Austin Country Club, which is Pete Dye, uh, and it's match play, a completely different format. He wins there. And heaven knows what would have happened had he been able to play at Augusta. But 
the three different golf course styles, three different management styles. He did the same exact thing in the FedEx Cup playoffs. Think about it. He goes to Boston, shoots 30 under par, 30 under par, and wins. And then he goes to Olympia Fields, uh, where he easily could have won, uh, and shoots four under par, 26 shots higher. But as I watched him at Olympia Fields, he laid up, Jeremy, more than any player in the field. And in fact, he told me that, you know, his, his management style was basically when the whole locations were in the front, he laid further back. Uh, he wanted to have a, a, a short iron that he could spin from 100 yards or 110 yards. And so he was laying up on holes that none of the other players in the field were laying up on. Hmm. So he goes there, you know, completely changes his, his management style and, uh, and plays extremely well. And then he goes to Eastlake the following week, which was kind of a hybrid. It was sort of halfway between Olympia Fields and, and Boston. And, uh, and he adapted to that one, too. He really is like a chameleon. That is his greatest strength. And for him to enjoy the success going forward that he's been enjoying, I say just keep that management style going and adapt to whatever the situation is. We're talking with Mark Rolfing here from Golf Channel and NBC. The U.S. Open returns to Golf Channel and NBC along with Peacock starting next week. Mark will be contributing to Golf Channel's live from daytime coverage from Wingfoot throughout the week. Um, here we go. Uh, a U.S. Open in September with rough that according to what John Rahm has said, and what your colleague Dan Hicks has said, um, who's a member there, and, and just a host of people is thick, dense, rough, and an over par is going to win, according to a source that talked to Mark, uh, sorry, which talked to Roger Maltby. So as, as you walked around these last couple of weeks and talked to the guys that had made trips or had talked to various sources, what's been the vibe you've been hearing about Wingfoot for next week? I'm hearing it's just really, really tough. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I'm very happy that actually, yeah, I'm doing the daytime live from starting Tuesday, but I'm actually on the Monday night primetime show with Randall, uh, which is good because that's going to give me a day Monday to go out there and take a look at it. Mm. I have to tell you that when I went to the PGA Championship for live from the PGA, I had heard, oh, my heavens, Harding Park is going to be really, really tough, and the rough is really high, and everybody's going to be laying up everywhere, and it's going to be a kind of a Jim Furyk, Webb Simpson sort of course, and I got there, uh, and, and that's not really what the case was at all. Um, so I'm glad I didn't sort of get ahead of myself uh, and, and say that, you know, not hitting it far was going to be fine at Harding, because at Harding, you did have to hit it far, and guys were trying to hit it as far as they could there, uh, even if it did end up in the rough. I don't think that'll be the case at Wingfoot, but um, I really don't think that's going to change the dynamic of, of who the favorites ought to be for that tournament. I think it will play quite a bit like Eastlake played, only harder. Because uh, that Eastlake rough was pretty penal, and the fairways were fairly narrow. And just take a look at how they finished at Eastlake. You had Johnson, then Thomas, then Shoffley, then Rom. One, two, three, four. I would put those four uh, as the four favorites for the U.S. Open right now. Huh. Interesting. That's that's an ambitious, uh, somewhat ambitious um, 
you know, look at it considering how JT can sometimes hit it wayward. But it is fascinating because I also believe, and I'm doing this blind without having looked it up, I, I, I think that's also top four in the world, if I'm not mistaken. I think, I, think it, I think it is. Yeah, so it's fascinating how that gets juxtaposed against what everybody thinks, which is this is a Xander Shoffley, who's one of those, Colin Morikawa, uh, Patrick Cantlay, guys who hit it dead straight, are an overly long thing, and you've got two guys there in DJ and JT who are bombers, and Rama who can get it out there as well. It's an interesting juxtaposition. Um Here's a question for you, having been around this game so long. These guys were on Rye and Bent for the first two playoff events, if I'm not mistaken. Then they go on to Bermuda for an event. Now they go back to Rye and Bentgrass. Is there any issue, do you think, for the guys who have played these last couple weeks of now bouncing between one type of grass to another type of grass? I don't think it'll be as much an issue about the grass as it will about really the style of wingfoot. If you look at wingfoot, the, the the way that it's really different from East Lake, for example, is that wingfoot's greens are way more severely pitched. It's a much different set of green complexes and much more severe. And the narrowest parts of the greens are in the front of the greens at wingfoot, for example. Uh, they have a lot of holes where, where there are bunkers on both sides of the greens, and they pinch in, particularly in the front. Uh, consequently, a couple things happen with that. Number one is the front hole locations at Wingfoot, I think, will be the most difficult. Uh, I, the, the greens tend to spread out a little bit the deeper you get into them. They're wider at the back on many of those greens. But the other thing is, if you miss hole high at Wingfoot, so if you're in one of the side bunkers, uh, because of the pitch of the green and the firmness of the greens and the speed of the greens, you're going to have almost no chance if you are hole high. So a player who gets in trouble at wing foot uh, and drives it in the rough, let's say, I think would be way better off pitching the ball out in front of those wing foot greens than to take a reckless rip at it and put it into one of the side green side bunkers uh, and have to deal with then all that slope and so I think course management at Wingfoot's going to be huge. That's, that's a very interesting point, especially because, and you may have this number, I don't, I, but there are very few people who played in this U.S. Open 14 years ago in this field. Um, so that's going to even put more impetus on these guys' scouting trips or on someone like DJ who hoped to play yesterday up here as we record this on Friday, the week before the, the uh, U.S. Open. Um, it... it, it it's something where I think they're going to have to make this adjustment on the fly and, and, and try to make this course management decision um, when they have. One guy I want to ask you about specifically is Scotty Scheffler. He has been on this run of really consistent play as a rookie. I would vote him as the rookie of the year over Victor Hovland, even though Victor won, just because of the the level of play and in, in, in the big-time events we have seen out of Scotty Scheffler. He does drive it pretty straight. Is this somebody who you think can step up and only his second major, really, and, and perform on a big stage? Or do you think he's going to have to get a win or two under him before we may see him coming down the stretch on a U.S. Open Sunday contending? Scott Scheffler could win the U.S. Open. 
I, I'll tell you that. I, I really don't think um, there'll be a fluke winner. There will not be a fluke winner at Wingfoot, but I wouldn't consider Scheffler, even though he hasn't won one, I wouldn't consider Scotty a fluke winner were he to win. Uh, the thing I like about him right now is how well he's putting. He putted beautifully at East Lake. And, um, you know, you're going to have six to eight footers all day long at Wingfoot. A lot of Wingfoot. A lot of them are going to be for pars, but if you drive the ball in the fairway, a lot will be for birdies also. So um, I like the way Scheffler's putting, and um, yes, he could win the U.S. Open. Interesting. Um, that is, I, I, I like it. I, I really like that pick. Um, two last things. Number one, and we're, and we're talking uh, to Mark Rolfing here uh, from, from Golf Channel and NBC. I had somebody tell me this week, n- n- not a pro, but one of my buddies, he's like, this is a Fleetwood major. This is one of those t- ones where Tommy Fleetwood has been off the radar. He's been in Europe. He's going to come over. This is going to be Tommy Fleetwood's week. And I think a lot of us are waiting for Tommy to take this next step on the American stage on the PGA Tour. Do you think an international player, whether it's Tommy or Matthew Fitzpatrick or you know maybe it's Rom, this golf course would in theory pick, uh, fit Justin Rose. We've seen Hideki Matsuyama. As a game come around lately, do you do you see somebody uh, not from the U.S. who's who you really like for next week? Well, and I actually I, I think I like the American players next week. Uh, I'm not real high on Fleetwood right now. Um, he has been very cautious about this whole COVID thing, and that's fine. Uh, but then you watch him in Portugal this week, uh, and he has little stretches. At least the first two days he has where he played pretty well, and then he hit some horrendous shots. He hit one at the 18th hole yesterday uh, that was a snap hook off the tee that barely got off the ground and went dead left into the water. Uh, I'm not sure he's totally ready, uh, and and it'll be hard for him, I think, to get acclimated. So I wouldn't have been as high uh, on Fleetwood now as I would have been, let's say, a year ago. Justin Rose? Yeah, maybe. Um... I really think, though, it is going to be tough to beat those top guys. You look at the way Thomas is playing right now, and look at the way Shopley putted at Eastlake. It was just off the charts. It was so good. Um, I really think this is going to be a very predictable U.S. Open, and I think one of those top players is going to win it. Um, And then finally, um, I'm not sure if... if you're allowed to to make a pick, but if you are right here going to make a pick, as we are as as we are recording this six days out from the start of the United States Open Championship, um, where would you say who who's going to be receiving that Jack Nicholas gold medal come Sunday night? Well, certainly I'm allowed to make a pick. Um, that's that is a that's a tough one. Um, I don't know. I have a hunch. Justin Thomas. Huh. Well, I'll say this. Uh, Bones is going to have a heck of a summer because Bones <laughs> Bones went from not caddying for a while to caddying for Matthew Fitzpatrick to caddying for JT to calling the USM. Now he's calling his first US Open. 
this is this has been all over uh, the map for for Bones, but who knows? Maybe Bones told JT something that can match up here. I I like this, and then he's gonna have um, Jimmy Johnson back on the bag. There's definitely gonna be some familiarity there, and I really like the way that that shapes up um, as we get into East Lake. And my pick is Xander Shoffley. I, I just think that he's one of these guys, even keel, doesn't show a lot of emotion, same kind of makeup as, as Colin Morikawa in that sense. And I just really like how those guys uh, step up in big spots. And we've seen it from, um, you know, from Xander before, whether it was the Tour Championship in 2017, whether it was... You know, his other wins in the PGA Tour, obviously, Colin stepped up. By the way, Xander, for the week, gained eight and a half shots in the field on, on the greens at East Lakes, uh, finishing second in strokes game putting for the week. Um, that's my pick for the week. I just think there's too many positives going in his direction. I really like the way that it's shaping up for Xander. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And, and, and don't forget that he actually shot a lower score at East Lakes than Dustin Johnson did. Uh, which shows you just how important it is, you know, to have, you know, an entire year's worth of work uh, going into the FedEx Cup. Uh, you know, I threw out a stat this morning on the show on Golf Central uh, that of the 10 winners in the fall last year on the PGA Tour, of the 10 winners, eight of them made it to East Lake, And one of them that didn't was Tiger, who didn't play very much. So, uh, you, you got to get going. Xander uh, just wasn't close enough. You can't spot Dustin Johnson that many strokes. But the other guy who I haven't really mentioned and who you mentioned that I have to say I think could win the U.S. Open very easily is Colin Morikawa. I just love his demeanor. I love his game. Uh, everything about him. Uh, I, he, he could win that U.S. Open really easily. He seems to me... Um just from an outsider's perspective, Colin seems like the guy that could be around for a while, that that I'm not sure. Yes, his swing could get off a little bit here, a little bit there, but if you look at the chip in at 14 at Harding Park and then ultimately the the made shot, um, sorry, the uh, tee shot on 16, he just seems to me a guy that won't get too far uh, 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 who, who won't get too far sideways mentally and emotionally. And while the game may come and go just like it does for all golfers, it seems like he's going to stay pretty sharp most weeks. And that's a formula for a long career and a long and successful career. Yeah, he really gets it too, uh, Jeremy. And let me tell you just a quick story, uh, and, and you'll see why I'm such a Colin Morikawa fan. At the Century Tournament of Champions in January, I was hosting an event for the sponsor on Friday night down at the hotel, and, and I had a player scheduled that was going to do a Q&A with me at, at 6.30 for the sponsor, really important event, and at about 6 o'clock I got a call that something had happened and the player couldn't couldn't make it. And so here we were, you know, Mark's going to be by himself, or what are we going to do? Uh, and Phil Marlboro from uh, the PGA Tour Player Relations went down to see if anybody was in the fitness center at the Ritz-Carlton. At 6 o'clock, he went in there, and Colin Morikawa is in a full sweat, uh, you know, with his gym shorts on and, you know, his Nike shirt and going hard, and he asked him whether or not he'd be willing to come upstairs and go on the stage with me, uh, and he got off the bike or whatever he was doing and put a towel around his neck and came straight upstairs and walked up onto the stage. Now, this is a 22-year-old kid. Uh, 
and was just delightful. Just could not have been better. It was just a phenomenal performance by Morikawa, and that submitted it for me. <laughs> I'm a Morikawa fan for life. Though. That is a great story, and what a kind gesture. What an amazingly kind gesture by Colin. That's a tremendous story, tremendous guy, and... Um, Kudos to you, by the way, and the whole team at Kapalua. Um, how that golf course looked, how it plays, and and how it will play going forward as it grows in with this new grass to play firm and fast, to put more decisions back in the players' hands. Um, I, I cannot wait to see the plantation course as we continue on here for the Tournament of Champions. It's going to be a tremendous test, and it... It, it showed on Sunday. It drove Justin Thomas nuts, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it couldn't have turned out better, really. If you could see my face right now, you'd see him, you know, smiling from ear to ear. Yeah, you're taking a chance always when you do that. You know, the main goal was to make it easier for the average tourist player uh, and, more, and more difficult and challenging for the best players in the world who had been shooting close to 30 under par. That's not an easy thing to accomplish, but... Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw did, and if you look at the end result, you had three of the top 12 players in the world played off. Reed, Chopley, and Thomas played off. So um, we were we were quite happy. It turned out great, and uh, going to be another good one in a few months out there. Mark Rolfing, Golf Channel and NBC. Um, he does such a great job. He's so kind, um, and we've waited six months to do this, and I'm so glad we were able to. You'll see him all week on live from uh, primetime Monday night, daytime the rest of the week on uh, Golf Channel. Mark, thank you for coming on Teeing It Up, and I'm glad we were finally able to make this work. Thanks, Jeremy. Great job. Let's uh, do it again here. Let's uh, wait uh, another however many years we have. Yes, I I hear you. And also, let's not have any more pandemics, which much uh, 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 sorry, any more pandemics which mess up the golf calendar. So yeah, I'm ready to get this over with. I don't know about you, but I sure am. Yes, exactly. Thank you for joining us, and thank you all for listening to this edition of Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling.